Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Now, we've got a fascinating show lined up for you today. We're focusing on cancer, and our two guests are specialists in that particular field. Professor Sue Evans is Director of the Victorian Cancer Registry. No small job. She spends her weekdays interrogating giant databases filled with a bazillion pieces of individual data so as to trace the epidemiology of cancer. She's been following patterns of diagnosis prior to and during the pandemic, so she has some very interesting trends to tell us about. Dr. Rick DeBoer is a clinical oncologist, that means cancer doctor. His areas of focus are lung and breast cancers, and in particular, the causes of treatment resistance and how treatment can cause bone loss. And that's a big problem in some uh, cancer treatment cases. His other interests are predictors of response to treatment, especially using targeted therapies. And he'll be telling us what targeted therapies are. He works both in the public and private sectors as it, and is involved in local and international clinical studies. And he speaks Dutch too. We'll be chatting with him about his work and the new treatments for cancer on the horizon. Joining me and I'm Dr. Mel, uh, Dr. Misunderstood, psychologist, researcher, and relative of one of the guests, and Nurse EpiPen, <laughs> nurse, epidemiologist, and the most well-connected health professional really on the planet. So stick with us, that is radiotherapy, for the next hour for the latest in the world of medicine and a smidge of music too. Good morning, Nurse EpiPen. Good morning, Dr. Mel. I'm feeling a bit rusty. I'm tripping over words. I'm having... Problems pushing buttons, but it's slowly coming back. It's like riding a bike. It is. Yeah. I rode my bike in today. Yeah, I saw you. Yeah. You're yeah. very, very fit. I'm, yeah, you've got to keep fit. Yeah. It's fit. one of the things, if you've been diagnosed with cancer or not diagnosed with cancer, keep fit. Keep fit. And that you certainly do. And I can also say, whenever you ride in, there's like a, a peloton of about 100 <laughs> people. Of, of like, I have my escort. <laughs> your closest friends, your closest 200 friends will always ride with you. So it's always delightful to see you and them riding in. Good morning, Dr. Misunderstood. Good morning. It's great to be here. A bit of a family affair. Isn't it just? <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. We'll keep that. Maybe we'll reveal to the listeners a little bit later on what a small, small yes. world medicine yes. is. Now, look, something which has really been consuming my time a lot, uh, just out of my own interest and as an academic, is artificial intelligence. And, mm. of course, everyone's heard of chat GPT. Now, you and I could spend hours talking about it, and I don't know exactly what aspect you're going to cover, but I am all ears. Yeah, so um, thanks, um, Mal. But I guess I just want to do a bit of a disclaimer. I'm not um, an expert (laughs) on AI. In fact, I'm very um, tech or behind-the-scenes tech illiterate, Um, and so coding is a whole different world and language Mm. to me. Um, So I guess my understanding has come direct from the source. So um, I've been hearing a lot about chat and GPT, and I have a lot of um, trouble with that acronym, but yes, been hearing a lot about the artificial intelligence, particularly in academic circles. Um, And so we, I've been getting a lot of emails from universities about how to manage um, artificial intelligence in academia and um, assignments. Yeah. Um, So I guess, 
I went straight to the source just to give the listeners a bit of a background of what ChatGTB is. Mm -hmm. So I typed in to the AI, what is ChatGPT in 25 words or less? Um, (laughs) And this is the response. So ChatGPT is an AI language model that can understand and generate human-like responses to assist with various tasks and engage in conversation. Mm. Nurse, have you Penny, if you've got a question. Uh, uh, what does the acronym stand for? Um, does Dr. anyone know? That's a- yeah, no, it does. It stands for something. Yes. Um, <laughs> I'll look it up. Somebody while. said, oh, is it medical because it's got GP in it. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> like a chat GP does. Yeah, yeah. But I'll, I'll look that up as uh, yeah, as yeah, I yeah, get back to technology. Yeah. Maybe that's yeah. We'll start a new a new AI. Um, but yeah, so I typed that into the program, and then I typed it in again, and it gave me a different response. Oh, and so it changes its response. Yeah, it can. Wow. Um, and this co- like can indicate an issue with academia, particularly in terms of plagiarism. Oh yeah. So students can type in questions or um, assignments and get spit out it will spit out an essay um, and you know another student can do the same thing and it will get a different response so difficulties detecting plagiarism so there's a lot of conversations around how to manage um, using AI in education Um, some people are thinking well our assignments and assessments don't um, you know maybe should be revamped um, to be things that computers cannot respond to but I guess on the other hand, you know, learning maths, any computer can solve yeah. very easy maths equations, but it's really important for in education to learn those kinds of small basic steps. Yeah, so what's the – I mean, when you got directors from the university. Are mm. you allowed to say what they're doing to try and limit the use of – or to how to incorporate or to, to even acknowledge the use of uh, artificial intelligence? That is a very great and important question, and unfortunately, I didn't read that email. So, <laughs> you I know didn't the, an- read the email. Thanks for calling me. I out. know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah. yes. So, one of the infectious diseases doctors at Peter Mac yeah. wrote a story, ah. and it came from the GPT yeah. bot, yeah. and she declared it at the end. Yeah. Ah. So, she acknowledged that this her summary of her work had come from this source. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's fair enough if you declare yeah. it, but then how are you going to pick it up if students are actually using it? Yeah. So, I did listen to yeah. an education program on the ABC, and they said they've got um, detectors. What? So, they've got things AI that will detectors. pick yeah, So, AI pick up detectors that will oh. identify plagiarisms. It becomes a bit of an arm race, oh, doesn't it? Yeah. Like the AI yeah. gets more sophisticated, the detectors get more sophisticated. Definitely. I reckon it's like holding your hand up to the sea. You cannot stop this. It's a matter of how you incorporate mm. it. I remember when I was, you know, in the 70s um, using calculators and, you know, our teachers said, oh, your calculators are terrible. You know, you've got, you've got to look up logarithmic tables because then you get to see all the other numbers around the number you're looking for and it gives you a sense of perspective, which is a pretty frail argument, really. But then, you know, calculators came in and we learnt to incorporate them into what we do. And it's, it's obviously going to be the same thing with, with uh, artificial intelligence. It's just a matter of how, of how we actually do that. I think it's a bit scary. So a friend did write uh, uh, a, a funeral notice yeah. uh, or for a, uh, a speech for at a yeah. funeral, and it was absolutely beautiful. Yeah. He could, and it was done in two minutes. Can I tell you, I wrote my wife a birthday card. I said, <laughs> write a, seriously, write a X number of birthday for my wife in the style of Beyonce, and it said, <gasps> said "You go, girl. You go, girl." It was fantastic. Wow! Um, oh, that's but exciting. I de- but I declared it as well. Now we've got a new segment for this show and this particular segment uh we are going to call pop the question 
And the idea is that, you know, both um, Misunderstood and I, and also Nurse EpiPen, are desperate for some competition. Because, you know, we're health professionals. We've spent our entire <laughs> life sitting exams, and there are no more exams. So on air, EpiPen is going to ask us, and every year, uh, month we'll rotate around, EpiPen is going to ask three questions to Misunderstood and myself, and the first two, two correct questions, wins that particular uh, week's. Di- week's prize. Prize. Which is a cafe latte across the road. Uh, nice, nice, okay, nice. So I love a bit of competition. And listeners at home, please join in. Get Pens poised. No, no, no chat GPT for this. <laughs> okay. Question okay. number one. Oh, no, no, I'm just going to say okay. yeah. happy Pride weekend. Oh, happy oh, Pride yes. weekend, yes. 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 So this is a segue into my first question. Yes, yes, yes. What year was the first Mardi Gras in Australia? Get your buzzers. Get your buzzers. Buzz, 1972. Oh, oh. oh, so close. Can I give close points? Well, I, th- Can I think... Can I incorporate no. that yep. answer into my... <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. 1971? Oh. When was it? 1978. Oh, really? And there yeah. were about 150 well, walkers in Sydney. Time, so. And um, yesterday, some of the figures, uh, half a million people attended wow. the, yeah, wow. in Sydney. That's fantastic. That's yeah. Wow, wow. Okay. okay. So it's 1978, first... Uh, Recognised gay Mardi Gras, gay Mardi Gras. walk okay. in the winter, in Good June. Oh. People rugged in up. Sydney? In yeah, Sydney? In Sydney, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay, okay, zero, okay. zero. Okay, zero, zero. Next one. Yeah. What are the only two species in the animal kingdom who have sex for pleasure? Dolphins, one. Yes, I know that's right. Two, humans. Oh, Point each. Yes. <laughs> Rebecca Gray, How did you get dolphins? Why did you dolphins? I think that's just some fun fact that was circulating. She was listening to Marinara. That is fantastic. Yeah. You, so how, did, how is this medical, by the way? Because they've observed them and they have big, the female dolphin, dolphins have big clitorises and they, really? they, they procreate and have sex all through the year and they don't do it round fertility times. That is wow. amazing knowledge. Yeah. Well, I okay. knew you'd ask me then. <laughs> one H. Okay. Okay, final, okay, final question. One. Misunderstood. Ready? Okay, final one. Freud. <laughs> You've got this one in the bag. <laughs> How old was he when he died? Oh. Uh, 72? 76? Oh, more, more, more. 78. 80. 83. Oh, wow. Okay. And this is an interesting fact, which is a segue into our show, yeah. because do you, who knows what he died from? Oh, um, cancer. cancer of the mouth. Yes. Ooh, from his yes. cigars. Yeah. From his cigars. Oh, yeah, from all those cigars. That, yeah. One each. Yeah. One each. So that was, yes. And there is a story that it's possible that it was physician-associated suicide because oh, really? of his cancer. Oh, yeah. oh really? No. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. In fact, I'm reading a, a, a review of a book which talks about how um, his physician came to see him. I think his name was Trotter, maybe. It was, it was a famous cancer surgeon probably at the time. And it was Freud's translator who actually knew the surgeon who got him to see Freud. Anyway, long, long, complicated thing. But, what? yes, there you go. Interesting. There you go. Chat the question. Chat. So um, that's uh, two points each. Yeah, draw. Um, so draw. Draw. Oh, draw. Damn, I had draws. So chat GPT <laughs> stands for – this is going to continue in the cafe. Okay, okay, chat GPT. It stands for uh, Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. How about that? Wow. So in case you didn't know. Listen to this show, boy. Oh, yeah. you are going to learn a lot when you listen to this show. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. In the studio, we have uh, Dr. Rick DeBoer, we've got Professor Evans, we've got Dr. Misunderstood. That sounds a bit clunky, isn't it? We have to, we have to think of, a, of a, an easier way. Miss. Yeah. Dr. Miss? Dr. Mel? Do- understood. Undies. <laughs> and Dr. Mel. Anyway, to kick off the first part of our show, we're going to be speaking with Sue Evans, Professor Sue Evans. And I've known Sue... For quite a long time. Of course you have. You know everybody. Because she has a very interesting background and she helped me in my work. But I'll let Sue tell us about herself. So, Sue, how did you start in this world of medicine and health and data? And take it away. Okay. So, uh, thanks, EpiPen. Uh, I, look, I did nursing um, back in the 80s. And after nursing, I... Um, worked in an ICU. I was kind of interested in, um, I was always interested in data and ICU is a really good place if you are interested in data. Um, And I worked in ICU for a number of years and then I found infection control. Um, So again, data sort of looking at infections in hospitals. Um, And then I went and did my PhD over in Adelaide looking at adverse events in hospitals. So it sort of all came together there um, and that I came out of that with a, a PhD in in medicine, um, and then I went back and did a master's in epidemiology and, and biostatistics, um, and then I joined John McNeil at the School of Public Health oh. and Preventive Medicine. Yeah at Monash and he took me under his wing and he is the registry sort of guru of, uh, if not Australia, then I think almost the world. Um, and so at that stage there were no cancer registries. Um, but I was um, uh, worked with Jeremy Miller to develop a prostate cancer registry, uh, which grew from being a sort of pilot in six hospitals as part of an NH and MRC grant to becoming Victoria, um, a, a prostate cancer registry for Victoria and then Movember came on board Mm, mm. and we became the Australian Prostate Cancer Registry, got jurisdictions all around Australia and then then it became a global registry. So it Mm. sort of grew and then in that process I kind of got a few skills in how to how to put a registry together. So I was um, often used to support other people developing their registries and developing operating principles for, for clinical quality registries. So, yeah, it sort of just burgeoned, didn't it, from... Yeah. Yeah, and when did you jump ship? <laughs> well, three and a half years ago, I actually uh, moved to the Victorian Cancer Registry, which is uh, within Cancer Council Victoria. And, uh, and so I'm now the director of the Victorian Cancer Registry. So my focus has moved from collecting the data and looking at treatment and outcomes um, and quality of life um, through patient reported outcomes to getting this amazing data set of, um, of cancer notifications from all around Victoria and kind of collating that into, um, into a report and giving the data out to researchers. It's, um, it's an amazing place to work and it's a terrific mm. data set that I now have my hands on. Is it like in in an Excel Excel spreadsheet, or is it like... <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's a lot bigger than that. It's uh, it's a very sophisticated system. We right. get more than one hundred and sixty thousand notifications coming in every year, so we have 
12 medical coders that consolidate that into a, a case record mm-hmm. um, and that reports come that report comes out the following November so we're actually the the most timely registry in the world in terms of collating all of that information and and being able to report the statistics um, so that usually is released end of November, start of December for the previous year. But as wow. you can appreciate, it takes a long time to kind of put all that data together and mm. report on it. Mm. How, so how many sort of cases of cancer w- uh, would the registry hold? Like it sounds like there'd be hundreds of thousands, millions. Well, even. yeah, that's right. Um, every year, thirty about well, last year anyway, 36,000 Victorians were diagnosed yeah. with cancer. Obviously, the population increases about 3% each year and the registry's been in effect since at a population level since 1982. So it's a lot of data. Mm -hmm. I don't know, you work it out. 42 (laughs) times. (laughs) 36, So I did a... I worked on a breast cancer family study with Professor Hopper and I used to go into the cancer registry and look at the histopathology reports. Are they still all stored and recorded linked to each patient? Yeah, they are, although it's sort of moved away from the paper coming in via fax and, <laughs> and mail. Carrier um, pigeon, yeah, dropping it, it by. It now is pretty much all automated. So we have a system called ePath, which basically picks the pathology report up off the laboratory information se- system and automatically sort of sends it through to us. So it comes electronically and then we have software that kind of tries to match it to a patient or, or, de- or sort of put together a new case file and then the medical coders go through and, and obviously consolidate that and take the information that comes from the hospital um, and uh, and puts it with the pathology and, and it becomes that case record. You know, we were just talking about artificial intelligence and I remember, uh, you'd know this better than I would, was it 20 years ago when there was... Uh, um, I think it was artificial intelligence at the time was used to look at pap smears to deter, rather than having humans look at every single pap smear screen, um, a computer would look at it and then sort of shunt off suspicious ones to the side, which were then confirmed by a human being. Uh, is that more common now in cancer as well, using more kind of artificial intelligence type things? Well, certainly in the registry we rely on artificial intelligence. The pathology report comes into the uh, the Victorian Cancer Registry, as I said, or, uh, electronically, and then artificial intelligence is pulling a lot of the data fields out of that pathology report. So we can now kind of present a whole lot more information without um, without having to type it in. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not... Um, infallible. I mean, it, there certainly needs a human eye over it, but it's um, it's the way of the future. And I know that in clinical practice, AI is being used a lot more to interpret, um, you know, different scans that come through. So the pathology, the um, imaging, the radiologists, yeah. you know, are able to use AI a lot more these days. Do you, I mean, where do you see that going into in your field in terms of cancer and cancer registries? What impact do you think it's going to have? Well, what it does is it makes a whole lot more data available to researchers. So we now, you know, get a lot of biomarkers and genetic tests that are coming through that are cancer-related. So the artificial intelligence can separate those out from the report. And we're actually at the moment doing a study where we have um, some, some data fields that are pulled off by the artificial intelligence um, and we can send those those cases to researchers to 
to fast track people yep. into clinical trials and I think that's the way of the future you know the data can help to to get people into clinical trials that they wouldn't otherwise you know be able mm. to or even mm. you know known about to mm. put into one so mm. we know clinical trials are certainly you know a lot of people don't get onto clinical trials that perhaps they could mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks, Dr. Uh, Professor Sue, sorry. Um, it sounds incredible and um, quite, I guess, scary in terms of how much data um, you might have access to. Um, and you've kind of led me into this question that I'm interested in, and it's probably very big. You've got so much data. What? Who uses that and what's like? What's it used for? Yeah, great question. Uh, look, it's, it's used for uh, a lot of different things. Um, it's used for research, so... Um, researchers can request the data, de-identified data, and obviously it requires ethical approval before we we hand out data. Um, It's used by uh, the cancer services to look at their, um, you know, what sort of people are coming into their health service. It's used by government um, because they need to plan for health services and particularly for cancer services that might need to be um, developed or expanded. Um, So it's used... Internationally, we part, we give our data to a, a, a Globacan, which is an international registry that reports on cancer. Um, it's used by the AHW. We send our data to the um, the AIA, Australian Institute for Health and Welfare, um, which reports on cancer in Australia and looks at disparities. Um, so you know, it's it's used for all number of reasons. It it, it feeds into biobanks to provide some clinical data to the biospecimens, but obviously it's all done under an ethical um, framework as well. Um, So the main reason for asking you onto the show today was if you could help us understand what happened during the pandemic, and we've read in the newspapers that people weren't going to their doctors and getting diagnosed with their lumps and bumps. Could you speak to that, please? Yeah, look, I think... Being the most timely registry, we sort of are at the front foot of understanding um, what's happening during COVID in the cancer space. Um, And our artificial intelligence software helps us to look at the number of notifications that come into the registry. And we noticed soon after lockdowns back in March, end of March 2020, um, that we were seeing a decline in the number of notifications coming through to the registry and um, and translating that into missed diagnoses, we found that in 2020 um, we saw a large, in, a large decline in cancer diagnoses and I think that was probably in some part to be expected because, you know, going back you might remember that we were all in lockdown and yeah. and uh, GPs were in a state of flux and hospitals were in a state of flux. Mm. Um, but I think um, we all kind of hoped that in 2021 we would see that decline decrease or that mm. we'd, we'd get back to normal and perhaps even an increase mm. because of, um, you know, places starting to open up and, and getting used to it all. But we didn't. We saw Ooh. that was still a decline in wow. 2021. Wow. So uh, a 3% decline, um, it was more than a 7% decline or 2,400 cases mixed in 2020. Wow. And, um, and overall between 2020 and 2021, we still see a 43 percent decline in the number of diagnoses which translates to about 1400 um, fewer um, diagnoses than we would expect so these are people that are out there in the community um, that perhaps prior to COVID would have had a diagnosis and and would have had treatment yeah. um, and that that's a real concern to us because you know we would want to see people coming in early with yeah. a diagnosis yeah. 
the later that you leave it, the the worse, you know, the prognosis mm. is. Um, and getting a cancer diagnosis is not a death sentence. Mm. Uh, 70% of Victorians with a cancer diagnosis live beyond five years mm-hmm. um, and five years, the survival is similar to the normal population. Mm-hmm. So, But it's really important that people get a diagnosis earlier because we want to get it before it's spread. Um, so I think that's the mm. message that mm. we really want to get out is those those people that are, you know, maybe not prioritise their health in 2020 and 2021 and even last year. So we're going to put you on hold for a second. We've built the drama really well about, you know, this amazing data set you've got and the, the, the real-world implications of finding out that data with clinical trials and also missed cases. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We are speaking with Professor Sue Evans about the Victorian Cancer Registry. Sue, you were saying that there are fourteen hundred, there were four percent less diagnoses of cancer or so over. 21, 22, is that right? Uh, actually, that's just in 2021 right. there were um, 1,400 fewer diagnoses. Yeah. Overall, the 2020 and the 2021 years, there were 3,800 fewer diagnoses Jeff. Jeff, yeah. when you combine them to, the, the two together. Do you know, if you were very naive like me, I'd look at that and say, great, you know, cancer rates have gone down. But it's not cancer rates, it's more cancer detection. That's it. So that these people who would have ordinarily been detected uh, have not been. And, yeah, I would have thought, knowing that, that the rate would have increased the following year as these people are detected. But why hasn't that happened? What are the theories about that? Look, it's it's hard to know exactly why. I mean, I know perhaps people feel like they... Um, they don't want to burden the health system. Yeah. The, the doctors, the GPs are busy. Maybe it's hard for, for them to, to get in, but um, mm. it, it's it's difficult to understand now why they haven't come in. Um, but I think, you know, the message really needs to get out that if you've got, a, you know, a, a mole on your skin, mm-hmm. melanomas are down, you know, uh, uh, diagnoses mm-hmm. are down, um, you know, it's important that you get that checked out and there are... You know, screening services that exist, and perhaps people haven't been taking it up. Maybe they've been scared to to go to breast screen mm. or to uh, reluctant to have that bowel cancer screening test. But uh, but we're seeing the downstream effect of that, and and that is that we are seeing f- fewer of those coming in mm. now. Um, so, did you have you looked at death mortality from cancers or up from these? Undiagnosed cancers is that? No, it hasn't. It hasn't translated into increased mortality, which is terrific, mm. uh, and that's that's a really good sort of message. A lot of the cancers that we're seeing a delayed diagnosis for are ones that are more slowly growing. Um, so we perhaps wouldn't expect to see an increase in mortality. Which at ones this are those? Point. Oh, so bowel cancer, okay. prostate cancer, breast cancer. Um, Melanoma mm. are the the big ones, um, and and those ones do take a while. Mm. You know, like you, you want to get to them early, mm. but they are relatively slow growing. Mm. So, again, message is get out, get it diagnosed early, because you can't sort of 
you, you can't take it back. You know, mm. it's it's there, it's grown, and, and you now have to deal with it. And, and that has a, a an ongoing impact on uh, not just the person who has to have a bigger operation, perhaps might, may need to have radiotherapy mm. where it might have been previously just able to be surgically excised, but it also has an impact on the health system as well, of course, because mm. it means longer, harder treatments. Mm. So I had a quick look for the signs and symptoms of a cancer and everybody should be aware of these, our listeners and the panel. Mm. So change in bowel or, uh, or bladder habits, a sore that doesn't heal, unusual bleeding or discharge from any orifice, thickening or lump in the breast or elsewhere, indigestion or difficulty in swallowing, obvious change in wart or mole on your skin, and nagging cough or hoarseness. I suppose they're pretty general and I'm sure maybe Dr DeBoer might comment more on those, but I think there's... I think anything that's a bit unusual... I have a big beef about poo. Yeah, <laughs> for big beef about poo, I'm sure you don't. Um, I've, I've got a theory. I mean, just as we were talking, so I, I was trying to reconcile in my own mind why there wouldn't be a tick-up of people then getting their... Um, previously undiagnosed cancers now diagnosed. Maybe part of it, and maybe it's because I think psychologically, is that, you know, we've got so much medical stuff going on. And so, and, and you know, now with COVID and vaccines and getting all that done, and it's, you know, you know the health system is working, but, you know, it's, it's coping with an increased number of people, that people may have a bit of medical overload as mm. well. And so, you know, previously, oh, they would get that mould checked out. Now it's, oh, look, I've got so many other things that I've got to think about that that kind of falls to second place. What you're saying is don't let that happen very much. Yeah, yeah. that's right. It, go see your GP if yeah. you're uncertain. Cancer Council has got an amazing nurse coordinating service, 13, 11, 20, um, which, you know, is there to give advice to... Uh, to anybody who might be concerned and not sure what to do um, with it, with regards to do I go in to see a GP yeah. or, you know, I'm, I have a person who's, you know, having cancer treatment, I need some advice. Uh, the 13, 11, 20 nurses are amazing. So That's the phone number you call, 13, 13 11, 13, 20. Got 11, any questions at all about cancer, yeah, just give them just a bell. Yeah, just give them a call. They're there um, to support people who, who are not sure what to do but are sort of in, in a space looking at cancer. Can I ask, uh, I mean, we, we could spend days talking to you because, I mean, you're just so knowledgeable and you explain things so simply. As we were walking to the studio, I said to you, tell me about PSA, which is prostatic specific antigen, and it's a screening test for prostate cancer in men. You know, when I was going through medicine, everybody had to have a PSA. And then, you know, when I got out, when I was an intern, no one should get a PSA. And then everybody should get a PSA. Now, it's like eggs, you know, it's in, it's out, it's in, it's out. Tell us about PSAs and its use as a screening test, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. So oh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty controversial area yeah. still. Uh, you know, you'd think you'd have it solved. We're actually working with Prostate Cancer Foundation Australia to develop new PSA testing guidelines because the space has changed. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it moves. Um, and you're right, you know, back in the 1990s, there was a huge influx of um, PSA testing mm. and we saw prostate cancer diagnoses going you know, through the roof. Mm. So, uh, and a lot of people were diagnosed with what we call indolent disease. So, disease, uh, prostate cancer um, that they would likely die with rather than from. from. Yeah. Um, and so, 
uh, that that caused a lot of psychological distress in men to have a diagnosis of cancer. Um, now the language has changed a bit and we've moved more from talking about a Gleason 6 disease, which sounds like it's, you know, a, a, a serious sort so, of prostate cancer. That's a rating cancer. scale, isn't it's it? It's a Gleason, rating, yeah, yeah that's right. Seven, but 6 yeah. start is where it starts. So, yeah. you know, people would say, oh, I've got a Gleason 6, and you think, oh, that must be terrible mm. um, because they're thinking on a scale yeah. of 1 to 10. But, um, but Gleason 6 is actually, you know, something that you should monitor actively mm surveil so um, you know keep an eye on but not have a treatment for mm. so they've now moved to this new grading system that's a, now called an ISUP 1 um, oh they've changed the name is, of the grading system <laughs> which is well it's good because it's it changes that perception good, I think good, good, and good, so people yeah. think of an ISUP 1 and they think okay well I can keep an eye on yeah, that yeah. Um, and so I think it, it's had a really good impact in terms of giving people with a diagnosis a little bit more reassurance yeah. but PSA testing, look, I think it's really important that people do get a PSA okay. test, um, but it's important to understand that it doesn't always need to have immediate treatment. It may not need to have treatment at all, but it is important that if you do have an elevated PSA level and you're not having treatment, that you have it monitored. So, um, you know, that you're keeping an eye on the PSA level to make sure that it doesn't go up, which might signal that you do need to have, uh, you know, perhaps radiotherapy or, or a prostatectomy to have it the prostate removed but five years survival after prostate cancer diagnosis is greater than 94 percent wow so you know wow again you know it's It's important that we do get to it early um but active surveillance keeping an eye on it without having active treatment like a prostatectomy or radiotherapy Mm. is a very valid option because having an operation carries with it a lot of side effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to avoid that, you know, that's that's a viable option for people with early stage disease. Obviously, if it's a bit higher than that, then treatment options are, are more kind of... And it's, it's very common. It's common, isn't it, prostate cancer? It's the most commonly diagnosed cancer in men. Yeah. Counts for about 30% of all our cancer diagnoses in men. Gee, I didn't know so, that. So, yes, it is a very common cancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, GPs are obviously the place where you go to get your, your PSA done. Um, briefly, can you tell us in 30 seconds where you think the next major innovation in cancer treatment will come from, what it will look like? Oh, look, I think immunotherapy is probably, yeah. you know, that's a huge, an amazing yeah. space and it's just, it's a real breakthrough. I think we're seeing amazing um, survival impact um, because of immunotherapy or personalised medicine. Mm -hmm. So rather than sort of uh, throwing everything at a person um, that has a cancer diagnosis, you know, there's more specific testing to look at particular markers Mm -hmm. um, that need to be treated or or, um, what what needs to be done. And, And immunotherapy is really a breakthrough science that will make a huge difference. Oh, I can hardly wait to talk to both you mm. and Dr. DeBoer about that because, you know, when I read that New England Journal study, it just blew my mind. Um, the, the cure rates were, were quite impressive. Anyway, mm. we will be speaking about that. Thank you so much. Please hang around, Professor Sue Evans. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Well, we are really stoked to have in the studio not just one cancer-focusing specialist, but two. Dr Rick DeBoer um, is... uh, 
how do I, Rick, tell us about yourself rather than have me tell the audience. I'm a medical oncologist, so um, obviously deal only with patients with, with cancer. Yeah. Um, and I suppose medical oncologists see patients who've already been diagnosed and we sort of recommend treatments, um, you know, longer-term management, follow-up. Obviously, we, we look after people with early cancer who mm. we hope to help be cured. And we obviously look after some patients who um, you know, have relapsed disease or mm. advanced disease or involved with that, that part of the sort of journey as well. Mm-hmm. So really, the tin tacks of our conversation today is about cancer. What is it, Rick? What is cancer? Good question. Oh, put me on the hard one. Well... I mean, most cancers come from, well, they come from our, our normal cells that have become abnormal. I suppose they've become immortal. They've developed mutations. They've changed. They become a bit rogue, gone off piste. You can think of it in different ways. And then they start to multiply, you know, get bigger until they become a, a mass or a, a lump or a whatever it might be. Um, obviously, there are liquid cancers as well, like leukemias. Mm. But they're basically your normal cells that have changed in some way for some reason. I mean, some people are born with, with you know, gene mutations that, that lead that way. A lot of people have heard of the BRCA genes for breast cancer mm. patients. Um, some are caused by external forces. The classic is the sun with melanoma, oh. um, you know, lung cancers with smoking, uh, pollution, etc. But a lot of cancers are what we call sporadic. They just happen. Uh, we're not quite sure what group of factors led to those cells becoming abnormal being able to evade the immune system and survive, thrive, and then turn into, you know, what we now know as cancer. I, you know, you just said immortal cells. I remember hearing something about, was it jellyfish? That there was some animal that had um, immortal cells as well that didn't turn into cancers and they'd just been passed along genetically. So, you know, when you use that word immortal, is that always a bad thing for cells? I'm not sure. I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I I suppose one of the things about our normal cells is if something goes wrong, they're programmed to either commit suicide, so to speak, or the immune system will clean them up. Ah, And there's that theory that that's happening every second in us. You know, little things are going wrong, but we clean them up or we ourselves self-clean them up or they kill themselves. And cancer cells have a way of not killing themselves even though they have that mistake, that they they manage to survive that that mistake and keep, keep multiplying. Yeah, and you're focusing particularly on a couple of uh, cancers uh, in particular. Which ones do you? I mean, do you breast is, is yeah. primarily uh, lung cancer was it was a big interest of mine as well. Yeah. Um, it's it depends a little bit where you work in Australia. It's one of the one of the difficulties if you work in a, a more remote area, you have to be able to obviously manage a lot of cancers because there's just not the the people to manage it. Um, I suppose we're a bit luckier in the sort of urban areas or the bigger hospitals where people start to subspecialise. So mm. many of us will concentrate on one or, or maybe two cancers to look after. What kind of changes have you seen in the last sort of decade or two in breast cancer? Uh, because just from uh, somebody who, um, you know, being a medical person, I kind of hear about these changes, but I'm not involved, obviously, in the details. But from what I say, there's been huge changes. Yeah, I think it reflects changes in cancer f- full stop. It's been incredible in a generation of, uh, you know, when I first started, uh, particularly if you were diagnosed with advanced cancer, it was, you know, really doom and gloom. You know, you talk about, a, you know, do you have a year or two or, you know, tidy your affairs, you know, really conversations like that almost from the beginning. Mm. 
and and now maybe not in every single cancer type, but certainly in some there are you know the sky's the limit now. Um, there's even you know, talk of of potentially curing some advanced cancers. You know, melanoma, for example, with immunotherapy we heard about before. It's incredible what they've achieved there in really a decade. Um, and now in some subtypes of breast cancer, we are seeing patients who, you know, when I first started, would have lived for months are now sort of, you know, tentatively thinking, have we cured this patient? Because wow. we're now wow. 10 or 15 years down wow. the track and nothing's happening. So that just in itself, that hope and, you know, better outcomes has really been dramatic. What was the... Um what was the main driver of that? Was it a paradigm change where completely new out-of-the-box treatments came in to, to the play or was it a further refining of current treatments? I think it depends on the cancer. So certainly um, for melanoma and lung cancer, immunotherapy has it changed it incredibly. I was just talking to someone the other day about uh, 15 years ago at lung cancer meetings, we used to argue whether to give drug A or B and whether to give four months or six months. That's really all we talked sure. about. And now with immunotherapy, it's, it's you know, how many patients still love it? Five years? Could we cure people? I mean, incredible change. Wow. With breast cancer, it's it, there's been a lot of different factors, but I think one of the big things is better understanding that it's a heterogeneous disease. There's lots of subtypes. And once you can subtype things, you can then develop more specific treatments for that subtype. You know, one of the great examples is a, is a drug called Herceptin, where if you just give it to every patient with breast cancer, there's only like 15% of patients who've got the, the target for that drug. Mm -hmm. If you gave it to everyone, you probably wouldn't get a great result yeah. because, of course, the result's diluted by the patients. But once you know the target, you can select the patient, mm -hmm. you give that drug, you get fantastic results, mm -hmm. and the drug changes the natural history for that group of patients. Mm. Uh, from one Dr DeBoer to another Dr DeBoer, um, <laughs> I just want to... I'm not um, trained medically, um, but I would just be curious a little bit... Dr uh, Professor Sorry, sorry mentioned it before, um, a little bit of background what immunotherapy mm. is, um, and I'd also be curious about, I guess, that personalised medicine mm. approach and the future in oncology. Mm. Yeah, so two, two slightly separate questions. So, I mean, there are a lot of different parts of immunotherapy and I'm not the world's immunotherapy expert there are some people amazing people who know, who know this super well and certainly people who've worked in melanoma have been using it and are really far ahead of of a lot of others in breast cancer it's not such a big part of it they're, they're, it's starting to get in there but I suppose fundamentally when I first started oncology the, the concern was and all the efforts in sort of so-called immunotherapy strategies was that the immune system wasn't good enough we had to boost it we had to sort of you know, stimulate it or, you know, vaccines or b boosters and things. And the big change was the understanding that the cancer cells themselves were holding back the immune system. They had an ability, if you if, call it a, a glass wall between them. And so the immune cells were angry and they would like to have attacked the cancer, but the cancer cells had a way of holding them back. And some of those first immunotherapy drugs basically broke that, that barrier or shattered that, that glass wall, if you want. And so the immune cells could get in and do the job they were supposed to and wanted to do. So the immunotherapy allows the, your normal immune system to come in and, and you know, do what, what it wants to do and get rid of those sort of cancer cells. And that's, that's been the real change, understanding there's a good immune system there, it just couldn't get at them. So what you're saying is shattering the glass ceiling is extremely beneficial for all. 
Across the board, oh. Dr. DeBoer. <laughs> but, yeah, so personalised medicine. Yeah, so personalised medicine, I was just thinking when Sue was talking about, you know, the big advances, I mean, I sort of said you can break it in different things. I mean, there's treatment advances as well, but personalised medicine is, I suppose, trying to understand that person's cancer at a, at a deeper level. What makes that cancer tick? What's driving it? What, what are the specific abnormalities, mutations that have caused this cancer to be what it is? And can we get an, a drug, an agent or whatever to target exactly that? that sort of mistake I suppose because you also hope that your normal cells don't have that mm. so therefore your treatment's smarter and, and more more directed hopefully less toxicities so it, it just it's a sort of an obvious thing to do let's try and have a treatment specific for that patient rather than the old days oh you've got breast cancer we treat everyone the same mm. and that sort of technology has gone you know just gangbusters it's incredible I was just hearing something just yesterday from a, a researcher in Sydney they can look at individual, they can get individual cancer cells out of your cancer and understand everything about that one cell, mm. that one cell. You know, they can break them up and look at them all individually and see what the mistakes are in them, et cetera. And while that's fantastic and opens lots of opportunities, it's also throwing up really complex questions because what they're finding is if you get a biopsy from three or four different places in a patient, the cancer cells in each place can start looking different to the others, Just and have, have wow. and, and sort of like almost like little po- a population of humans who move to different parts yeah, of the world, yeah. and over time they sort of change a little bit, hmm. and so therefore coming up with treatments that will work across the board and and target all those areas is going to be a challenge. So there's real promise and really exciting times, but it throws up as much questions as it answers. With um, immunotherapy, if I could just bring you back to that, uh, could you explain to well, to me, really, um, <laughs> how you break down that wall that the or that ceiling that that glass that glass wall that the the cells are put up. I'd I'd understood um, immunotherapy to be injecting immunoglobulins uh, into the patient, but is that wrong? Do you do? Yeah, so? it's yeah. not. Yeah, not so correct, that, yeah. that's a that's a different. I suppose that's trying to replace a part of your yeah. immune system that's not working very well. So there is immunoglobulin therapy for yeah. other disease. You know, yeah. people who are born without that things will need a replacement. Or so immunotherapy are, are actual sort of you know, drugs or you know yeah. medications. So and they're given like chemotherapy in a way yeah. through a drip. But one thing always remember is everything through a drip is not chemotherapy. Yeah. A lot of people think that. Um, so. They're actually there's an arm of the of the immune cell that sticks out, mm-hmm. and there's an arm of a cancer cell that sticks out, mm. and those two arms come together and join like a bridge, mm. you know, coming together, mm. and they ho- and so the cancer cell is basically holding in its grip that arm of the mm. of the immune cell, and I always sometimes think like when my brother used to beat me up all the time, he I couldn't hit him because he'd hold his arm out and hold me away, <laughs> and I'm you know that little cartoon, I'm flailing away. We had to- the same brother. Yeah. <laughs> You know, if I could just break that arm, you know, let's get rid of that arm, I could get at him. Yeah, and I suppose that in a, in a strange way is what it's doing. Very it's, nice metaphor, yeah. the, the drug gets in, in that joint and disrupts yeah. the joint so that, you know, that, that arm is not there anymore and so the immune cell can come in and uh, get to the cancer cell. Yeah. So the first uh, cancers that immunotherapy was used on was were uh, melanomas is that right mm. yeah yeah so i mean a very, again very at a very basic level when you think about it the, the, the immunotherapy has been amazing in the cancers that are caused by external forces so oh, think of, of melanoma course, yes. in the sun and lung and the cigarettes because those cells those cancers, they're really bizarre they've been 
subjected to some pretty horrible stuff. And so right. they really have got a lot of sort of, you know, angry mutations yeah. in them, as it were. And so the immune system really wants to get at them. Yeah. And it was frustrated, I suppose. Yeah. And now immunotherapy allows that. And I've seen sort of, you know, reports and, and pictures from, from melanoma, you know, like a horrible melanoma on a lip and literally a single dose or two doses of immunotherapy and it just disappears. Unbelievable. You know, just... But there are cancers that are less, less, I suppose, different. Like breast cancer is a great example. Yeah. So hormone-positive breast cancer, the most common subtype, the cells are not that different in a way from the normal breast cells because they've still got the hormone connections. It's much harder for the immune system to recognise that. So immunotherapy may not or never be a big player in those cancers that the cells are more like normal cells, if as it were. Makes sense, yeah. Just quickly, um, vaccines and cancer, where, where are we up to with that one? Well, I'm going to. T- when I was listening to Sue before, I think the the best way to manage cancer is to prevent it. You know, we we love treatments and we love you know we spend time and money on trials on treatment and understanding and diagnosis. Really important, super important. But prevention is where you make the huge changes. You know, think of cardiovascular disease, think of you know strokes, etc. I mean, it's all about pre- prevention, and I suppose that's an area we need to focus more. And I suppose vaccines are part of that sort of idea of preventing cancers rather than waiting for them to develop to diagnose and to treat. That will never go away, but I think that's a, a big big story we need to follow. So the current vaccine preventer is a Gardasil? Yeah, yep. yeah incredibly successful. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. Australian yeah. invention. Yep. Yeah. yeah. What other uh, vaccines do we have that are either on the horizon or that are being used? Yeah, or... I'm not, I mean, I, a long time ago I was involved with a lot of efforts to develop those sort of immune vaccines to boost the immune system. Right. And there is still work going yeah. on them. And for some of those targeted uh, uh, cancers with targets, the ability to develop you know, antibodies that will attack them when they're still minute. Yeah. So, But in terms of you know, go down the street and get a vaccine for you to prevent your cancer coming. We're not quite there yet, but I think that's that's an important thing that we'll keep working on. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. Like, you know, just the other day, my my daughter said, "Oh, don't like the look of that thing on your face," and I thought, "What am I?" She said, "No, no, I don't. You know, like your face, but there's that little thing there, and I think you should go get it checked out." And I think you know, having that awareness, uh, you know, that any you know a mole that's changed or looks different or is bumpy or bleeding all those sorts of things you know just get it checked out same thing as you were talking about before EpiPen that we just need more not more well we do need more consciousness and about love prevention. your poo love looking at your poo for goodness sake was, and do your fecal occult blood I was I was remark it's weird because I you know because we had done gastroenterology we worked in the gastroenterology department a long time ago EpiPen and I and so you know we were looking at poo every I don't know five times a day we're looking at poo <laughs> Yet when it came to doing my own faecal occult blood um, test that I got in the mail, I was a little bit hesitant, you know, because you keep putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. And eventually, you know, I did it and it came back normal. And, I mean, what, what other countries in the world do this? How many other countries in the world send 50-year-olds a little gift package saying, you know, send us your poo? Probably not as many as they should. Well, yeah. <laughs> Indeed. It's, it's quite amazing. Anyway, we could go on and on about poo, Pen and I, because we spent a lifetime uh, looking at it. But uh, you have been listening to Radiotherapy here on Triple R with our special guests, uh, Dr. Rick DeBoer and Professor Sue Evans. Thank you so much for coming in. You've also been listening to Nurse EpiPen and uh, Miss, uh, Dr. Misunderstood. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. 
Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.